0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900-CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. The Hamilton Wentworth District School Board is going to stop naming schools after notable citizens. So, to not offend anyone... Ears. that guy with a radio show. No, <laughs> no, no, no.
0: No, don't do that. No, 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 no. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Welcome to the fun. Love to have you here. All right. What is going on? Day eight of the uh, federal civil service strike. And this is interesting. This in the Globe and Mail uh, was updated just a little bit ago. Uh, Striking federal workers will continue getting regular salaries until at least May 10th. Think about that. Uh, striking federal workers will continue getting regular salaries until at least May 10th. We're going to talk to the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation about this coming up next. Uh, I'll read you the first two paragraphs from the Globe and Mail article. Striking uh, federal public civil servants will continue to receive their regular salaries until at least May 10th. So that's when I predict the uh, strike will end. According to the government, though, it will be likely they'll have their pay clawed back at a later date for the days they have spent on the picket line. Uh, public, what if they don't go? Uh, public Service and Procurement Canada, the federal department in charge of employee salary, told the Globe and Mail that workers who participate in the current strike could start seeing a reduction in their pay as of the May 10th uh, paycheck, but it is still unclear if the paid deduction will apply to all striking workers. So right now, I guess, are they getting strike pay? I don't know. But they're getting paid. So it's not really a strike. It's more of a sick day. More of a, um, I don't know, uh, more of a day off? I mean, you want to say that? So uh, quite bizarre, quite bizarre, and we'll get to the bottom of it coming up in just a sec with uh, with uh, the Canadian Taxpayer Federation. All right, I want to uh, read you a letter, and uh, it came in yesterday after the show, and uh, it was quite a heat show yesterday uh, in regard to the school boards and not naming uh, schools after notable people anymore. So here is a letter that uh, I received, and I've just realized it says for internal review only, so you're not supposed to hear it, so I will leave the name out of it. Uh, but it says, hello. I have been a loyal CHML listener for four decades and counting. I enjoy hearing the morning news on my way into work, uh, with the excellent announcers in the lineup. And I also try to catch the Bill Kelly show. I would also like to tune in during my late afternoon drive home. However, find it increasingly difficult to listen to the Scott Thompson show, whose host is sounding more and more extreme and not delivering much, if any quality content that would be worth listening to. Instead of providing a balanced, informative discussion, host Thompson seems driven to turn almost every topic into a tirade, often about the Prime Minister. I am not affiliated with any party, nor hold uh, many politicians in high regard, but I have to say Thompson's use of his platform to drone on and display his obvious hate on for the Prime Minister is frankly getting old. Between the stammering, angry ranting and seemingly lack of ability to articulate in an intelligent manner and in brackets take today's bizarre beat down on a school board rep over the board's decision about naming schools the lack of professionalism and absence of quality information or balance is worthy of a fox news host not what I would hope for in our local station that has much more to offer listeners in our community through quality content as in its other time slots, as well as the opportunity to promote healthy, informative, respectful, and positive discussion. Sincere regards, Karen. Here's my reply. Thanks for the note and for listening, Karen. The great thing about talk radio is we all don't have to agree, and in my opinion, I believe we should be able to name names or sorry, name schools after notable citizens. Thanks for the feedback. Be well chat tomorrow, Scott. So, you know, it's obvious that this person uh, has a different opinion than mine. It's obvious. They're not happy with the show. It's not, it's obvious. They're not happy with me picking on the prime minister and don't think it's an overreach to say we can't name schools over notable citizens anymore. Um, But if I was all of those things, I don't think I would have read that letter on the air, heavily criticizing what it is I do and my team do as content producers and technical producers that support me in the show. But anyway, that's what talk radio is. That's what's great about talk radio. I can say one thing and you can completely disagree and hate me. But you'll be able to, even when you only want it for internal review only, we will bring it forward, keep you anonymous and have the discussion. Because that's what great talk radio is about. That's what we're losing in the media today. It's more of you don't, you know, we don't agree to disagree anymore. Instead, we argue and we fight. And, you know, I'm thinking as I'm reading this note and what I will take from it is what am I doing to bring people together? What am I doing not to get sucked into this? Because the more extreme left you go, the more you hear from the extreme right. And the more extreme right you go, the more you hear from the extreme left. And I will bear to say the majority, great majority of Canadians are on I aren't on either extreme. They're in the middle. So what I've done is I've asked Will to kind of pull me in when he thinks I'm getting sucked into this extreme revolution that we all seem to be jumping on. So we're gonna give it a try. It's sort of like a a safe word or a, a safe sound effect that'll pull me back when I'm getting sucked into the extreme world. Wanna give it a go, Will? all right (laughs) uh okay so today in the house of commons uh the ndp leader jagmeet singh is going after the ndp or sorry he's going after the liberal party and then the prime minister stands up and he starts going after the ndp and so you have the ndp and the liberals fighting each other in the house of commons and they're sort of on the same team and then pierre Polyev stands up and he says, Look at these two guys. Go- <laughs> 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 All right. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sheesh, I feel a lot better now. All right, it is 3.15, full show coming up. Strap yourself in, put on your protective headgear if you are worthy. All right. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on the federal government to immediately stop paying striking employees and commit to clawing back every time, uh, every dime. Simple. If you're not working, uh, the taxpayers shouldn't be paying for you, says Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And he is with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. AM. Thanks for having me on today. So let's add some clarity to this, Franco, because obviously um, most people get paid. Uh, there's a two week uh, layover there. So they're still getting paid. Why is that in? Is this not pay from two weeks ago?
1: Yeah, those are very good questions. So I want to get into the weeds a bit. But first, let me just give you the overall two things that taxpayers need to know. The government is still paying bureaucrats to strike and it isn't sure if it'll get that money back even for the striking days. So this was first uh, this bombshell of news, I would say, was was first reported by the Globe and Mail um, that dug into some of these details and outlined the fact that you have striking federal employees will continue receiving the regular salaries until at least May the 10th. So three weeks after the strike started. Now, the report notes that the government will likely claw back the pay at a later date. Um, for the days that were spent on the picket line, the days that were spent not at work. But here's a very important part. It's not clear if these pay deductions in the future will apply to all striking workers, and the government has not committed or made it clear whether or not it will get all the money back. Okay, so again, the the high-level parts here is we're not talking about going after the money that is paid to employees before April the 19th when it's striking, Right. The big concern for taxpayers is that the government is going to be paying employees who didn't go to work for the April 19 day onward and that it won't get the money back or may not get all of the money back after the strike is finished. Or it could be part of a settlement. Well, that's another big that's another big issue. Right. And if that happens, I mean, all taxpayers should be outraged. All taxpayers should be outraged. Yeah, because, look, more, You have a right a, to strike. OK, yeah. I get it but taxpayers should not be paying for you while you're striking. So um, uh, uh, are they getting strike pay as well at this time? Well, that's a good question. You know, I'm not exactly sure how the union will deal with that. My big concern is with the government paying people to strike and then potentially not getting it back. Now, all of this is absurd, but there's more, okay? Here might be the most absurd part of this whole story, and it's how governments go about getting the money back from employees. So, here's the protocol that's in place based on past strikes. Uh federal employees themselves <laughs> are required to submit what's called unpaid leave requests so that they can have their pay deducted in the future. Okay, so let me translate that for your listeners. Yeah. The, the government pays bureaucrats to strike and then it hopes that bureaucrats will apply, fill out a form to give the money back to the government. Right. You see oh, how ridiculous man. that is? And, and look, yeah. I mean, you, br- you bring up a really good point at the beginning, right? Well, w- what if we're just paying them now for previous work? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that as it goes on, potentially into the future, the government could continue to pay these bureaucrats to strike, and then it might not get the money back. Now, this convoluted process is because of incompetence. Why do I say that? Everyone in Canada knew that they were going to go on strike or at least we're threatening strikes, right? I remember reading reports about the PSAC threatening strikes all the way back to last September.
0: Um, so what happens after May tenth? Because my guess is the strike the strike will be settled by then.
1: Well, yeah, I mean maybe, but the government doesn't even hasn't even made it clear. All the government has made clear is that the striking federal employees will continue to receive their regular salaries until at least May the 10th. That's all that the government has made clear. So we don't know what's gonna happen after May 10th. And, and, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me about, well, you know, back to work legislation, this, that, and the other thing. Well, before you even have those types of conversations, the first thing the government should do is just stop paying bureaucrats to go on strike. That's number one.
0: So it's not costing um, these federal employees at this point anything to to not go to work. They're getting paid either way, whether they're on the strike,
1: whether they're at home watching TV. Yeah. Well, isn't that something, right? Okay. during the pandemic, federal bureaucrats didn't have to worry about missing a paycheck. In fact, the government handed out 800,000 raises over the last three years since 2020 during the pandemic. Now, there's only 400,000 federal employees thereabouts. That is that is employed by the government so if you do the math <laughs> the vast majority of employees received at least one raise during the pandemic year so even during a pandemic they weren't worried about missing a pay raise. and now even when they're on strike bureaucrats aren't worried about missing a paycheck isn't that something Wow. Franco Tarasano with us, Canadian
0: Taxpayer Federation, federal director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, calling on the federal government to immediately stop paying striking employees and commit to clawing back uh, what has been paid during the strike. Franco, thanks for the time and insight. As always, be well. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> all right lots of chatter in regard to nuclear energy of late uh, simply with the uh, after the invasion the russian invasion of ukraine and, uh, and the energy supply chain uh, becoming tested the way it is and an interesting article in the globe and mail today russia's dominance of nuclear energy and the nuclear energy supply chain is cause for concern where is this energy or where is this industry and is this an energy that is in our future are we going forward scaling back let's bring in David Novog, Professor, Department of Engineering and Physics, McMaster University, and is with us now. David,
2: thanks for the time. hope you're well. I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me today.
0: So what is the mood around nuclear energy right now? Has it changed since the Russian invasion of Ukraine?
2: Yeah, most certainly it has. I mean, there was a scale up of nuclear already in the works uh, as a low carbon energy source, you know, here in Canada and around the world. But certainly after the invasion in Ukraine, um, the stresses on the energy system in Europe and and, and elsewhere in the world are really uh, bringing to, to the forefront the issue of energy independence and energy security.
0: Uh, we remember that uh, when Pickering and Darlington were built, uh, there was a real buzz around uh, nuclear energy, and then it seemed to wane a little bit. Why is that? What is bringing the confidence back?
2: Well, I, I think what's um, in the interim, around the time when Darlington was finished construction, um, you know, there were several things that occurred over time. The Chernobyl accident happened in the 80s. And then in the 90s, we saw, you know, almost a surplus of energy in Ontario for, for quite some time. And so the, the demands for new nuclear really waned here in Canada and, and pretty much everywhere in the world. What's happened recently is, you know, with electrification of vehicles and phasing out of coal and trying to limit natural gas usage, there's not a huge amount of options for abundant and and reliable, um, you know, low carbon electricity. And so countries like Canada and the United States and, and many countries in Europe are really beginning to gear up for a new construction phase. The issue is really that... You know, building one reactor at a time is kind of a pretty inefficient way to develop experience and expertise. Uh in, in France, for example, they're they're building one reactor there, but it's kind of gone off the rails because I, I think, you know, our expertise for these mega projects has really been lost. And what we need to do is is regain it, you know, get some mm-hmm. Get some several builds under our belt and develop the people and the trades and the, you know, the engineering and, and all the things required to, to, to execute these programs. Because I, I think the public wouldn't tolerate these huge, huge overspends like we've seen in the past. So, so that's one thing in nuclear that's really at the forefront of, of how we're trying to develop the new technologies.
0: It's interesting you use the word build because it seems we haven't done a lot of that lately. Why is nuclear a good fit for Ontario, for Canada?
2: Well I think in Ontario it's already a, an excellent fit and and people might not realize that over 50% of our electricity today and and on most days is coming from nuclear. And in fact our grid in Ontario our electrical grid is one of the greenest around because we have a you know a pretty good abundance of hydroelectricity and nuclear and we supplement it with some wind and some solar and and this is kind of you know, a perfect energy mix. What we'd like to do is is take the solar and build it out, take the nuclear and build it out, so that we can begin electrifying vehicles. You know, large industry like the steel makers, and and, and really still maintain a competitive and vi- vibrant economy, but but just do it with a lot less carbon.
0: Uh, Let's talk about Russia. The article in the Globe and Mail talks about Russia's dominance in nuclear energy and specifically the uh, supply chain. How concerned are you of this or their even ability to handle uh, what is involved in this industry? What are your concerns?
2: So I guess, you know, the, the interesting thing with Russia is for decades, they've been pretty successful at building their technologies in foreign countries, so exporting it and then you know a nuclear power plant lasts for about 40 to 60 years so in the interim russia would be selling services and fuel and all kinds of things to keep the plants operational and so from a business strategy you know it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty smart way to do things in terms of you know helping to subsidize and build the initial reactor but then developing a supply chain that really benefits your local economy you know canada actually has this overseas a lot of people don't realize that we've we've exported candu technology to countries all over the world and there is a very vibrant supply chain in canada that that looks after not just our own reactors but those reactors we exported overseas
0: uh, obviously, we know how with the Russian invasion of ukraine and and Russia throttling back uh, energy in that area, fossil fuel in that in that area, uh, do they have the ability to do the same with nuclear energy and that supply chain?
2: Well, I mean, right now, a lot of the future builds people have been talking about we're sort of counting on getting you know a, an abundant and fairly cheap supply of fuel from Russia. So now for those future and advanced reactor builds, you know, the United States Department of Energy is investing billions of dollars to recreate the supply chain that's going to be necessary to support those future reactors. So I think there's a lot of activity and huge investments taking place to sort of recapture the you know, Western and, and Europeans' capability to supply its own reactors um, going forward. One about- interesting thing, Scott, is in, in Canada. We our can do technology was developed in the 1950s to really uh, utilize natural uranium. So our supply chain in Canada is completely independent from Russian uh, R- Russian supplies and from United you know, st- supplies from the United States. And we did that on purpose back then because we wanted to be a country that could, you know, uh, mine its own uranium, develop that resource, and use it without reliance on others. And so the can do technology was really Unique in the world and enabled Canada to sort of be independent in terms of its nuclear energy needs.
0: Uh, that was exactly my my next question, David. Do we have uh, the supply chain? Is it as easily accessible? Do you? And obviously, you've said that it is. So this is really a self sufficient industry in that sense. Uh, what about when it comes to battery production? We're hearing a lot about EV. Uh, production plants here, battery plants, VW, what have you, and lots of chatter about mining those minerals. Is, is that very similar to way, what you're mining for, for nuclear energy? Is it just a, a different arm of the same thing?
2: Um, Well, you know, a lot of the locations, the geography in Canada where you would look for, you know, rare metals or rare earth metals that are used in batteries and those things are in different locations than where we mine uranium. So Cameco has has production in, in Saskatchewan and other places in Canada looking at uranium supply. I think when the government's talking about, you know, this ring of fire and develop mining there, it's really to develop a resource for those materials we need for solar cells and batteries and those kind of things. Because, I, I, you know, the latest numbers I saw were somewhere in the greater than 80 percent of those minerals are currently coming from uh, countries that are at risk. So places like China and so on. Man. And so, the, you know, in, we need to develop if we're going to go the full electric vehicle and electrification route, we need to make sure that we have reliable sources. And Canada could be one of those sources. And I think there's a lot of interest in developing uh, that supply, you know, independent from nuclear reactors, but the supply chain needed for the rest of that kind of electrified uh, economy.
0: Are you expecting a nuclear build out in the next few years? Or is this happening now?
2: Yeah, I think OPG is already submitted uh, to the regulatory bodies. It's intent to build a react- a, another new reactor at Darlington. And, uh, and Global First Power, which is a consortia, is looking to build a very small reactor in Chalk River to demonstrate, you know, community-sized reactors. So there's already builds in progress and being staffed up for right now. But I think even uh, the Prime Minister this week said we are going to need a lot more here in Canada. And so, uh, you know, we're probably looking at a build... Maybe of the same order of magnitude, maybe not exactly the same of what we saw in the 1970s and 1980s. So, you know, uh, uh, new builds at, at various locations in Ontario and reestablishing all of that supply chain over again. You know, we need welders and electricians and and we need them to get special certifications to work in nuclear. So all that will mm. take, you know, some time to develop all those people and talent all over again. Because it's kind of been lost. You know, we haven't built reactors in about 25 or 30 years. So, you know, right now, that's really what people have been focusing on is how we're going to get the people and the training in place in a short time frame to to have that kind of build out that that most people predict we need.
0: David Nobog with us, professor in the Department of Engineering Physics, McMaster University, talking about the future of nuclear energy and a rebirth of sorts here in this country. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
2: Very, very welcome. And uh, I'm happy to come anytime. Thanks, Scott.
0: The reenactment of the Battle of Stony Creek. Remember this? Absolutely. Uh, But the great news is it is back. After a three-year hiatus, the reenactment of the Battle of Stony Creek returns to Battlefield House, Museum, and Park Stony Creek. To talk more about all of it, Brenda Branch is with us, Marketing and Promotions Officer, Planning and Economic Development, Tourism and Culture, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Brenda, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
3: Yes, very well. Thank you. Thank you for having us on.
0: Uh, this is one of those events that uh, that, that 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 has a, a an audience, and they love it. And boy, have been disappointed over the last three years that it has not been going on. What's it been like? H- how do you how have you transitioned through all of this?
3: Uh, well, we formed a planning committee, um, brought some of the reenactor community to the table, um, discussed how we could carry out um, the event again, and how we could enhance it. Um, So we have been actually adding some programming, which is very exciting.
0: So how is it different or how will it be different this year as in years in the past?
3: Well, I think visitors will see most of the same programming that they're used to, which is a good thing. Um, Most of the enhancements have to do with Indigenous programming. So we have a lacrosse game happening on the battlefield prior to Yeah, prior to both battle reenactments on the Saturday. Um, So we have Haudenosaunee lacrosse. We have 16 players coming out. Um, Indigenous people um, strive to find peaceful solutions to war or to conflict. And many times in their history, they've played lacrosse games to solve conflict. So it is a really good pairing um, with the event itself. Um, And with the lacrosse game, it will be narrated, telling the story. Um, And there will also be singers and dancers following the game with some audience participation. Um, And then the players, which is very traditional, will enjoy Indigenous food on the sidelines while the dancers are inviting the audience to participate.
0: So talk about the players and who's involved and how all of this happens, how this reenactment takes place,
4: how it unfolds.
3: Uh, Well, the battle reenactments themselves are reenactments of the actual Battle of Stony Creek Mm -hmm. um, that occurred June 6, 1813. Um, And they have been happening since the event started in 1981. Um, This addition um, with the indigenous uh, lacrosse, um, it, it's just an added performance and, mm-hmm. again, talks to a peaceful solutions to war, um, 16 players. Um, it's a group um, out of six nations, um, and yeah, they're, they're lacrosse players, and, mm. and they're going to demonstrate the game and, and engage the audience.
0: All right. The battle itself and what people have been used to over the last uh, several years and such, how does that come about? Who who are those people that are that are playing those roles? How many are involved? How does that come together? Who plans that?
3: It's the reenactment community. It's a very large community. Yeah. Um, there are approximately 500 reenactors that participate at the event. Wow. Um, they camp on sites in encampments. There's a military encampment, a militia encampment, a U.S. encampment. um, And they organize the actual battle reenactment. They do this at other events, too. Um, So, you know, they're very, very good at what they do. Um, We, as the city, we more or less look at the ancillary programming and such. But the reenactor community itself organizes the battle reenactments.
0: And what about visitors? How many visitors would you get to this on a a regular year? Are you anticipating more this year because it's the return?
3: Um, I think we are. You know, we're estimating around 8,000 visitors. Um, Our peak for the event was the Canada 150 celebrations. We had Mm. 13,000 visitors. Um, Average, um, probably around the 7,500 mark. So probably 8,000 or more over the weekend.
0: And give us the logistics, where it is, when, all of that.
3: It's at Battlefield House, Museum and Park in Stony Creek at the corner of King Street and Centennial Parkway. Uh, It is from Saturday from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And on Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. We are running a shuttle bus. There's no parking on site. There'll be a shuttle bus running a constant loop between public parking and the site. And that information will go up on our website soon. The program schedule is up on the website now if people want to go take a look. Uh, The website is hamilton.ca slash reenactment.
0: All right, Brenda Branch with us, Marketing Promotions Officer, Planning and Economic Development, Tourism Culture, City of Hamilton. After a three-year hiatus, the reenactment of the Battle of Stony Creek returns to Battlefield House, Museum, and Park coming up this season. Brenda, good luck this year. Thanks for the time. Be well.
3: Thanks so much, Scott, for having us on. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer,
1: he'll delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Ontario government said Tuesday that it is introducing a number of new measures to boost lagging police recruitment numbers, including eliminating a post-secondary education requirement and covering the costs of mandatory training. To talk more about all of this, Brian Cookman is with us. Retired deputy with the Kingston Police Service, business development consultant with Investigative Solutions Network, and is with us now. Brian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
4: Doing very well, Scott. Thank you. Yourself?
0: So far, so good. So your thoughts here. um, Well, before we even get started there, what does it take to become a police officer in Ontario now? How has that changed?
4: Well, the standard has always been that you'd be a Canadian citizen or permanent resident of Canada, be 18 years of age. Of course, your physical and mental uh, acuity to perform the duties, good character, and, uh, of course, the things have, have been flowed over the last few years, and the latest has been that uh, you require the four-year program of post-secondary education. And I guess that's where I find it interesting, is that really this is not new, uh, that they're going back to what it used to be, which was the uh, high school education. So it's not as though this is a huge revelation. They're just turning back the hands of time almost. Um, is So that's where it is.
0: Uh I remember the day and I I've, I've got a few friends and family members who have or or, or or are or have been uh police officers over the years and I remember at one time they didn't really care if you did matter of fact they probably uh, pre- uh, preferred that you didn't because they were doing their own training and they didn't want to counter uh, act what uh you know was already going on in at, at Elmer for example um is it better to have that post secondary is that better to have that larger base or does that training come from within
4: I guess what I find also interesting is that um, it's not going to be a requirement that you have just a high school uh, education. What it is, it's going to end up becoming a collection of experiences, as it should be. And if you happen to have a university degree or a college degree or diploma or certificate, then, of course, that just gets put into that uh, whole amalgam of experiences that any police service looks at when a recruit comes through the door or a candidate comes through the door. So it's not as though that it's the end all be all that you have a certain type of education. Uh, they're just eliminating the need for that university or college education. And I'll be honest with you, Scott, I have met some awfully, awfully good police officers who have had high school educations, but their life experiences have been just incredible immeasurable when it comes to other people's and uh, they have become stellar police officers
0: uh some have been critical that the uh, this is lowering the bar for new recruits would you agree with that
4: no i don't think it's lowering the bar i think what that says is that you're inherently imperfect if you don't have a four-year degree or diploma i don't think that's fair um And I don't think it's lowering, it's just eliminating that one aspect. Again, you have to look at the total person. Everyone comes with different experiences, different histories. So it it just can't be a standalone item when you're looking for a solid police officer to go forward in the community.
0: Should there, some of you suggested there should be a specific course, whether it's taken at this institution or that institution, but a basic course that is approved by, uh, I guess, all police associations and such, that this is going to be the baseline for education, whether it's, uh, you know, two years, four years, post-secondary, what have you, uh, this is the route to take and then have a standardized situation and then uh, let them apply. Is that needed? Does that... Um, does that does that stop a certain segment from actually being recruited signing up?
4: um if I'm following what you're you're thinking here is that a an atmosphere of continuing education and educational opportunities by police services is something that everyone strives for and whether that's done at the local level where an officer goes out into a you know It goes and mirrors the United Way for a few days and see how they're reacting, interacting with the community, Um, whether they have an opportunity to go. I'm here in Kingston. So does the officer take the opportunity to go to Queen's University and upgrade their education, um, online education? You go to the Ontario Police College. You can go to the RCMP College. There's all kinds of opportunities for officers, and officers are given those opportunities. I guess what it comes down to, Scott, is what are the best courses for officers to take in order for them to become the best possible police officer in their community.
0: Uh, Do you think with this new uh, situation that this will help boost recruitment?
4: It may very well do that. I think I'm sure the Ontario Association of Chief of Police and Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, even the International, have had a lot of conversation with the Premier's office and the Ministry of Community and Safety, or Community Safety and Correctional Services as well, and the Solicitor General, about what it may take to turn this tide. Um, you know, the RCMP, of course, have been in the press. I guess <laughs> all police services have been in the press lately. Mm-hmm but they're really struggling with their recruitment. So you, you look at the number of people that are coming out of policing because of retirement, and you look at the very finite number that are applying to come into the stream. So it just becomes a real circular problem because the officers that are there left behind, they become stressed out, they get burned out. Uh, the criticism of the profession and so they're struggling so that sometimes we're not putting the best foot forward out on the street and nobody's coming in to backstop those officers because of the hiring problem it's it is a conundrum
0: Brian Cookman with us, retired deputy with the Kingston Police Service Business Development Consultant with Investigative Solutions Network, Ontario government making changes to boost lagging police recruitment numbers uh, in uh, the services right the way across the country, really, when you think about it. Brian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
4: Thank you, Scott. Take care.
0: You may have heard or may not have heard that U.S. Uh, president Joe Biden has announced he is going to run for another term president in 2024. Fascinating because remember when he ran last time? It, you know, OK, please, somebody take over, Joe, you do something with Biden, or with uh, Trump, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think I remember when he when he took office, some thought he's not going to finish the first term and he's going to hand it over to the vice president. Here we go. Uh, signing up for a second. Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, professor emeritus, politics, public administration at Toronto Met- uh, Metropolitan University. And with us now, Wayne, thanks for your time. Hope you're well.
5: Well, I'm well, thank you. And uh, not a problem.
0: So your thoughts, Wayne, on this? Many thought he wouldn't finish the first term and would install the VP uh, towards the end and now a second term. Are you surprised?
5: You know, I don't think so. Uh, he has, uh, I mean, he's always, he's five, a decade now political career. That's how long it's been since he first started out in the late 60s, I think. And he's uh, hes committed to his his approach, which has always been more bipartisan in in nature. And I think the last, the the four years prior to to 2020, really got on, really, really bothered him in terms of the breakdown of any kind of bipartisanship, of any kind of consensus making. And he decided that the rot was so deep, he, he was going to try to reverse that. And four years obviously hasn't been so far. Two and a half, three years hasn't been enough. He's going to give it another go. How good has
0: he been as unifi- as the unifier? Because again, we remember how divisive uh, Donald Trump was. Has he accomplished that? And that's one thing I really noticed in some of the speeches that he makes. He really does try to bring people together. Is that working?
5: He's tried, and you know his his accomplishments are are, are, are certainly fairly significant, but. Ultimately, in terms of has he bridged that divide? No, he's not. The the political system in the United States, I think one could safely argue, is just broken.
0: Can you now? How do you fix what's broken?
5: You know, I'm not sure you do. Um, It's it's no longer dueling political parties. It's almost like dueling religions, where Mm. the... Ultra partisans on each side are are so convinced of the rightness and righteousness of yeah. what they advocate that they're they're simply intolerant of of any other view. Uh, and what's so I guess if you're an outsider like we are watching this, it, it's depressing to see that. You know, whenever there's a, a shooting, uh, immediately the talk goes to gun control, and we we almost now all can recite the lines. Yeah, because it's been the same lines that have been used for decades. You know, when we have a is a, 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 a egregious incident of, of 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 kind of racism, again, we 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 hang our heads because you know what's going to happen, what the TV coverage is going to do, and you know what the partisans on both sides are going to say. It, you know, it, it's the worst version of Groundhog Day.
0: Huh. Um, we're not searching for common ground, rather looking for a way to drive home what our agenda, what our thought is. Have we gone past the point of no return? Does society have to dictate rather than the politicians whether we're going to unite?
5: You know, I, I, I do think you know, for the Americans, they are getting to that point. It reminds me almost of the 1850s, you know, the, the decade prior to the onset of Civil War, where the political class certainly had made up its mind and was simply jockeying for position and for advantage before they got into what they inevitably believed they were going to get into. When 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 you look at you know, just today, Republicans uh, putting together a package to uh, force a confrontation over the debt. You know, the, this is the same group of Republicans who, when Donald Trump was president, twice without even bothering to require a vote, increased the debt limit. Mm. The same I say guess- individuals will now tell you the world is going to end. We're all dead if we don't. <laughs> stop this right now.
0: Uh, We remember the battle uh, with Donald uh, Biden versus Trump. Are we just to assume that's going to be the stage for the next election? It still is a year and a half away.
5: Yes, that's right. And no, that's very dicey. I think it's dicey because uh, the legal issues are not going away for Mr. Trump. In fact, they're they're about to expand. Uh, uh, in terms of what's happening in Georgia and what, and in terms of the, the documents issue with the Department of Justice. Uh, so his legal issues are going to expand. Will the Republican Party literally go over the cliff with him? You know, On a bad day, you're inclined to say, yeah, they probably will, uh, for reasons that no one can seem to wrap their head around or explain in any kind of cogent way. Uh, they may very well t- take somebody who is simultaneously preparing for a criminal trial and contesting the nomination for president of the United States. I mean, no one could imagine that, even mm-hmm. in these alternate histories, which are now so popular. You wouldn't have thought, I oh, know. Come on, you're not going to have somebody looking at criminal felony charges. Uh, and in court, jumping out of the courtroom onto the campaign trail, back and forth. But will
0: will the campaign be the same as it was first time around, or is that impossible to gauge now for the reasons you just mentioned? And we we're still not certain of the players yet, or at least one of them. Um, will the campaign? How will the campaign be different this time? Do we know? I,
5: unless, as, as you put it earlier, society intervenes, it will become even more harsh and more bitter and and uh, than we've ever seen before. The amounts of money spent will top all numbers that we've ever seen. And you know truth is if they' the more likely effect most likely effect is it'll convince at least some Americans just not even bother to vote. Uh, because it, it it you almost feel like you need to shower after you come out of the voting booth. Yeah, you know we we it it's hard to believe that the beacon of democracy has has really abandoned any any commitment to that idea.
0: Is there a strong unifying candidate in either party? Is there an upcoming Democrat, an upcoming uh, a Republican that is waiting in the weeds to provide a fresh vision for everyone?
5: You know, at this point, I don't think there is. And if anything, among the current, even younger leadership of the Republican Party, uh, they're doubling down on their positions, whether it's abortion, uh, whether it's the Second Amendment, uh, whatever the issue they are doubling down and what's odd about it and and so counterintuitive is that you know they last won the popular vote a presidential candidate under the Republican banner over three and a half decades ago and yet they continue to take more and more extreme positions which have the effect of reducing the breadth of their support and you know they talk about I don't know about lots of of, of their commitments, but it it just doesn't make any sense. I I can't imagine what their campaign advisors and strategists, uh, I mean, they're like, it's a witch's brew where you're trying to figure out a way, let's win the election while still losing the popular vote.
0: And while while shooting oneself in the foot, Uh, it's amazing. Uh, Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, Uh, the U.S. presidential race, Joe Biden confirming yesterday he's in. Wayne, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
5: Okay, you too. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900
6: CHML.
0: We talked about this earlier in the Globe and Mail. uh, Striking federal public servants uh, will continue to receive their regular salaries until at least May 10th, according to the government, though they will likely have their pay clawed back at a later date for the days that they have spent on the picket line. The Globe and Mail, uh, they uh, they told the Globe and Mail that workers who participate in the current strike could start seeing a reduction in pay, in their May 10th paycheck, but is still unclear if this will apply to all striking workers. Uh, memos from the union to the members this week said that there is still no clarity as to whether striking workers will cease to get their usual paycheck as the strike goes on. The protocol that was followed during previous strikes involves workers themselves submitting a unpaid leave request through the government's Phoenix Pay system after the actions, and then having their pay deducted in subsequent cycles. In other words, you fill out a form to send in so you won't get paid. Is that going to work? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University, with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. They're doing very well. Thanks, Scott. Can you explain this to us, Ian? What is going on? Are they actually getting paid while they're on strike? Will all of this pay be deducted in future pays?
6: Uh, yes, they are, but yes, it will be clawed back. Um, uh, they clawed it back with the overpayments. With uh, I don't want to get in the weeds here, but the Phoenix... Yeah, let's just call it the software program. It's, it's much more complex than that, but it's uh, the the payroll system for the government of Canada. And uh, because of all the mess ups and the implementation of this uh, over the years, there were people that were overpaid there were people that were underpaid. And the people that were overpaid did get clawed back. But, Scott, I just want to step back just because people can say, well, how can that be? You know, um, I just want to throw some big picture numbers here because, you know, I'm a numbers guy. So I've uh, I, I confirmed this with Stats Canada data and 2022, the end of 2022, which was only a few months ago, we're only in April. So four months ago at the end of the year, there were 335,900 people in the, what's called the core public service. Again, I don't want to get into the weeds, but the uh, government of Canada, the treasury board, the employer se- separates or classifies Everyone in the government into two broad categories, core public service, and then the so-called separate agencies, independent agencies like Canada Mortgage and Housing. The core public service of the departments that I think most Canadians are familiar with, you know, Finance, Canada, uh, Immigration, Borders, you know, these departments. So there's 335,000 Canadians, almost 336,000 in the core public service, and another Two hundred and fifty thousand in the agencies who are also employees. RCMP is considered an agency, by the way. The military. So you you add that up, and you're you're approaching six hundred thousand people. To say that the government of Canada is a a giant, it's an elephant. It's a herd of elephants in the room. It is the largest single employer in Canada, bar none, by light years. And so you can realize where I'm going with this, and I'm not trying to defend this, but I'm just saying it's so large. It's so bureaucratic. And the payroll um, uh, system is such a nightmare. Just, you know, send in an order and say, stop paying them. It is so large and so complex. You know, it's like that proverbial um, image of the oil tanker, um, you know, that's three or four or five football fields long and it's going you know, it's going in the ocean and somebody issues the order to stop and it takes three or four miles for the thing to come to a full stop. Well, it's analogous to that. This, this, this enormous monster called the government of Canada is, is so large and so bureaucratic. It will take them uh, easily a couple of months to even stop paying the people who are striking. And then it'll probably take another two or three or four months after that to claw it back, but they will claw it back. Because it's all digitized, they've got their SIN numbers, their employee numbers, they've got the data, and um, and they will claw it back. But it it will they will continue to be paid, and then down the road they'll get clawed back. In fact, PSAC PSAC has warned the workers put money aside because they'll be coming after you for the uh, the uh, the overpayment when when you are on strike.
0: What are the chances that's part of the settlement? Ian.
6: Well, that you've raised an excellent question, Scott. Does that not happen most of the time? It has happened um, in um, labor negotiations, labor relations, excuse me, uh, both public and private sector, um, where you settle afterwards. And when I say you, I mean, the employer and the employee called the union settles and to sweeten the the package, to reduce the anger and the rancor and the hostility and all that stuff, Uh, management will, the employer, sometimes say, well, look, you know, okay, we'll give you a, it's like almost a signing bonus. And uh, and they won't ever say, we're going to compensate you for the wages you lost on the strike. They will classify it, codify it. A pitch it, spin it, whatever work you want as some, as a size as a signing bonus to close the deal. But yes, it it, it often does happen that they, uh, especially if the strike is short, we're not talking a strike that goes on for months on end. And so the money, all the money lost really becomes significant in a five day strike, 10 day strike. The money's for per person is not gigantic. And so, yes, they might Settle on that and say, OK, we'll give you a signing bonus that happens to be equal to, you know, half of the wages you lost while you were on strike or three quarters of the wages or something like that. It all depends on what they negotiate at the at the bargaining table.
0: And a couple of seconds left. So I just need a short answer here. Is it up to the employee to file themselves to get their pay deducted?
6: They uh, it's not quite that simple. It does. But they also. The and I've actually talked to people in the government and in the PSAC, they record who is showing up to work and who is not who is showing up at the picket line. And so they actually they compare the two. So anybody who is uh, faking it, to be blunt, <laughs> you know, saying yeah. I'm on strike, but hey, I'm, a, you know, you tell the work of the union, I'm on strike, but you tell the government you're working. The, the records are matched after and they do catch people who are trying to uh, be on both sides of the ledger. There are uh, uh, checks and balances is what I'm saying. And they will catch people who are uh, not uh, uh, who are on strike, but but claiming to be paid. Yes, they Doc- will not be caught.
0: Doctor Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. The federal public service strike now in day eight. Ian, as always,
1: thanks for the time. Be well.
6: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This
6: is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On
1: Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CXMW.
0: We certainly know we are in day eight of the federal public service strike. What will be the uh, political ramifications and fallout going forward here um, I mean, unless you're looking for a passport, which has been an issue for quite a while now, uh, has the federal strike affected you in any way? However, a different story if you're living in the city of Ottawa. Let's find out what life is like there. Daniel Perry is with us, consultant, Suma Strategies, and here now. Daniel, thanks for the time.
7: Hope you're well. Same to you, Scott.
0: So, what is it like in Ottawa this past week? Uh, obviously, a lot of uh, uh, federal public service uh, service uh, employees there. What is the town or the city of Ottawa like this week?
7: Well, very much unlike last time, we had some visitors coming and protesting. They usually leave by five o'clock, which is nice, and they're not honking their horns at all all hours. Uh, they got a, they got bad, a home. They got you. a
0: home to go. They got a home to go to, I guess, which is a positive here. <laughs> exactly. Year.
7: exactly. Uh, All kidding aside, uh, their presence is definitely noticed in the downtown core. The four blocks that make up most of Ottawa and where the government buildings are, they're there. They're very loud. They're very happy to be there. Um, They're making noise when they want. They're getting people honk their horns. But broadly speaking, they're pretty peaceful. They're nice people. They're good people like you and me out there.
0: And we've been hearing reports in regard to their pay that they're being paid now. Uh, Do we know if, in fact, they will have to claw that back in future paychecks? Or do you think that will be part of the collective agreement?
7: Uh, That's the joys of Canada's Federal Public Service and the famous Phoenix. Uh, It doesn't really work very well. So the reason why they're still being paid right now is because it's just such a big beast to try to turn around and turn off their pay. From my understanding and what uh, the Treasury Board has been saying is that Uh, after this pay period and then going forward, they will be adjusting people's pay because if they're not working, you're not going to get paid. So they're going to find mechanisms to make sure that those that are on strike are not going to be paid and they'll be deducted later on. Do you think that may be a part of the collective agreement? I I think so. I think there is something that can be said there because I think at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of give and take on both sides. And I, I think for the union, that would be a fair thing to ask for for their members because right now they're getting $75 a day and, you can't really buy much for $75 when parking in downtown Ottawa is about 25 a day. So I, I think that's something even the government could concede on. Maybe they could find some common ground there.
0: Uh, support for this strike within the city limits.
7: Uh, broadly speaking, they're pretty, uh, this is a government town. So I, yeah, I, I think yeah. we would see a lot, even, even in general, we'll see support for this. Um, they're fair, again, fairly peaceful. They're not really disrupting most people's days. So, most people just walk by and shrug their shoulders.
0: How do you think it sits with Canadians to think that, yeah, you know, they are still getting paid when they are striking. It's supposed to be clawed back. The Phoenix pay system has its own yeah. ghost, and this will probably be for a settlement or part of the mm-hmm. settlement. So theoretically, they're, they're just on a day off or days yeah. off or what have you.
7: Uh, I think the average Canadian probably doesn't really care about this. Yeah, a recent poll came out from Angus for you saying that 55%. Of Canadians agree with the pay raise, so I, I think when push comes to shove. Wait a sec,
0: Daniel. Was it the pay, was it the pay raise they agree with or the premium pay for working extra hours? I think that was a, a difference. I don't think that they're okay. Yeah, uh,
7: well, they generally agree with it for the most part in Canadians. So I, I think if push comes to shove, I, I think there's bigger issue Canadians are dealing with than if the civil servants on strike right now getting paid.
0: Um, 9% wage increase. I just saw the union president, uh, on a news show saying this is firm. This is, or sorry, they're not budging from their 13. The government yeah. says it's not moving from it. its. Uh, again, many have said it's only 1%, uh, mm-hmm. one point, a little over 1% over, uh, the three years. Uh, do you think this is still the main sticking point? I would say so. It's,
7: it definitely, the government doesn't want to pay more. The union doesn't want to take a cut. And, uh, I think that's probably one of the big reasons that they're sticking on. I think the work from home is kind of fluid. I'm pretty sure the government's very clear that they're not looking to add that into a collective bargaining agreement because that creates a nightmare down the road for future collective bargaining agreements in a path that they don't want to create. So at the end of the day, money always talks, and that's usually the biggest sticking point in a negotiation like this.
0: I uh, can't be in an agreement because something like this worked uh, from home is not a one-size-fits-all. Can this still be – does that mean that it still won't be used in the public service?
7: Well, I think it will still be used to a certain point. I think uh, the president of the Treasury Board has been very clear that she wants the public servants to be back in office for a couple days of the week, uh, even if they don't like it. It's one of the things that helps build communities, help build bonds and helps honestly get better work done. Uh, and we're seeing that in the private sector. So it makes sense that the public sector is looking to do a little bit as well. So for those that don't like it, it's kind of one of those moments where it's too bad. Like We're going back to a new, to reality and part of the reality is being in office again.
0: Uh, How does the government of the day balance this? Uh, Obviously, for the prime minister, as you said, Ottawa is a government town. These are his people. A lot of uh, I think they're all pretty much all except one. Pierre
7: Polyevra's seat is liberal. How does the government balance this? Uh, A very, very fine, tightrope act, uh, if I'm being honest, Scott, Uh, because every party wants to be seen as the party of labor, the party of the people, The NDP is taking a very strong stance. So if we do get a point for back-to-work legislation, the dance partner that the government will have will either be the conservatives of the bloc, and I don't think either of them really want to help the government out on this one. So they're going to have to eventually maybe even make compromises, and maybe they will move a little bit on that 9%, but uh, it's doubtful. But it's really hard to say because I think if this goes on much longer, especially next week when the Liberals are having their convention here in Ottawa, it's not going to be a good look for them.
0: Uh, NDP and Liberals duking it out in the House of Commons today, both Jagmeet Singh and the Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. It seems kind of odd considering they're working in unison to keep the government together.
7: Mm -hmm. It it seems like there is some sticking points in the agreement that they have, and one of that is uh, labor rights. So uh, this is really an opportunity for the NDP to hit the government and show that they're standing up for their traditional base. One that if you look at recent polls, especially from Advocates data, you're seeing that they're slowly losing. So I think the NDP see this as an opportunity to hold the government's feet to the fire, but they also have a seat at the table. So they they believe that they can make some change and hopefully help the government move along and maybe get a political win out of this for themselves. Do you think this is going to go another week, Daniel? Oh, I think so. Uh, I like. It seems like both sides are very much set in their ways. Until uh, liberal MPs and the local rioting are hearing that people are struggling, people are upset. I don't see it going anywhere, especially with the tax deadline. A lot of families are relying on their rebate to get by for next month. So when that doesn't come in the mail, I think that's when the liberals are going to hear about it. I think that's when they'll be a little bit more willing to move on this.
0: Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies, day eight of the federal public service strike. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. All right, I was sitting here thinking the other day, I wonder what Fred Eisenberger is doing, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. We used to love talking to him all the time, of course, when he was mayor. And, you know, just like Larry, we had him on earlier. It doesn't mean we can't still have Fred on. So let's uh, play some catch-up here. Joining us, Fred Eisenberger, former mayor of the city of Hamilton and with us now. Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am
8: uh, doing exceptionally well, Scott. Thank you, and thanks for, uh, thanks for the invite
0: so it. what's it what's it been like for you, Fred? What's it been like sort of sitting on the sidelines? have you not cared in any leash? you have no idea what's going on in the city or are you sitting on the sidelines uh, kind of watching what's going on
8: well i I've got you know one one eye on my on what I'm doing uh, you know personally and one eye on the city i mean i'll I'll always be passionate about what's going on in our city and i, I don't I don't think i'm uh, I'm paying attention day to day, but I'm certainly uh, keeping an eye out on the on matters, and but you know, I, I mean, I'm not involved at this point. So you know, it's uh, it's a new council and a new mayor, and uh, I'm I'm certainly not about to uh, to get in the way of their decision making process. So uh, I'm not going to weigh in, but certainly uh, concerned, and uh, as always, about uh, how our city's progressing.
0: Has Andrea called you up and asked you for any tips on how to handle council?
8: <laughs> From time to time, she's shared some. Uh, <laughs> Some thoughts and maybe some frustrations. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's 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 a difficult thing to uh, to kind of manage. Uh, you know, 15 people with diverse opinions and diverse ideas, and this particular council is probably more diverse than most. And so, uh, you know, it's been a challenge, I'm sure. And uh, every once in a while, I get uh, get a therapy call. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. You just need a
0: couch there, Fred. Um, <laughs> have you started on your next path or has it just been one of rest and relaxation for a bit and just trying to catch your breath after all of this?
8: Yeah, you know, I promised myself for the first two or three months that I would uh, not not get, engage in anything and just take a break and get a, get a mind break going. And that's been... Uh, hugely successful and uh, but there are moments in time now when I'm, I'm thinking to myself you know i need to think about uh, you know what i might involve myself in and and you know people have called and i'm uh, certainly turning my mind to that i've got a couple of projects that i'm involved in but i'm not looking for a job so uh, it's been uh, a glorious time to kind of rekindle some friendships and some family connections and some kids and some grandkids a lot of things that you know we're put off not entirely but certainly put off more than it should have been uh, over the last uh, 12 years as a as mayor so uh you know i've got i get the opportunity to spend a whole lot more time with uh, family and friends and that's uh that's certainly a positive and you know we we had the opportunity to Noodle off to Barbados for a couple of weeks and mm. suffer through some hot, sandy <laughs> uh, ocean and warm water. And uh, you know, we struggled through it, but we managed. Uh, and so you know those kinds of things are opportunities that uh, you know might otherwise not happen if I were still mayor. So I dearly miss working with all of the great people that i've uh, that I've been had the opportunity to work with and uh, and members of council. But at the same time, uh, I'm not uh, not necessarily missing the uh, the tension and the pressure of uh, being the mayor of the city. of What's
0: it like when you run into whether it's just citizenry on the streets or old co-workers or cohorts or stuff? What's that? like? It was interesting because I saw a picture on Facebook of you and David Dames down at the power station yeah. in Niagara. Yeah. Remember, David was up here with tourism and such. I've seen that same exhibit. It's unbelievable, isn't it?
8: Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? yeah you know david dames uh was one of our finest uh city employees and uh ended up uh heading up the uh the niagara parks commission and has done a terrific job over the last 10 years i mean the niagara, niagara parks commission is a huge enterprise you don't really realize how mm. massive it is in terms of scope and scale and length in fact and uh, did a terrific job of uh restoring the uh the historic power center that was uh turned to the previous cent cent, uh century uh power generation and uh they did a terrific job re rehabilitating that and bringing that open and open for the public which is terrific the whole table rock center has been revamped i mean they've done just a terrific job now but to your question you know more people are interested in talking to me now that i'm not mayor actually interesting <laughs> why um, is know, that you would have thought you would have thought when i was mayor that people would uh, you know be wanting to either share their uh, disappointment or their opinions and uh, it's been actually quite delightful to uh, to, to sit and talk with uh, folks in the community and and you know about things that they care about and you know they've been absolutely fantastic and of course I mean, I you know I've I've been around long enough that uh, you know it's 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 hard to not be recognized, and I'm not looking to do that. Uh, even in Barbados, uh, you know, I bumped into a whole pile of Hamiltonians and folks from Niagara because oh man, you, know, you guys have reach. Uh, you know, CHML goes a little further than just Hamilton, and and it's been absolutely delightful. I'm I'm really quite uh, quite thankful of the kind of the nice uh, nice comments and nice responses and uh, and appreciation that people have shown us. Uh, when we've gotten together. And I, I feel like I have more time to devote to sitting down with folks and talking about our great city. And I, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that.
0: I never even thought about that, Fred, but yeah, anywhere you go, there's bound to be a Hamiltonian somewhere.
8: Yeah. I and mean, then it's, it's delightful. I mean, it's uh it's, it's a great way to connect with people. And uh, you know, I'm standing in line at a food truck in, uh, in, uh, you know, Rockley beach in Barbados. And uh, you know, all of a sudden a guy turns around and says, why do I know you? <laughs> and, uh, and it was a guy from Niagara that obviously caught the news every once in a while, or, you know, CHML or whatever, uh, whatever, you know, whatever you were on Yeah. and said, Oh yeah, the mayor of Hamilton. And of course there's a picture and a selfie and he wants to send it home <laughs> to the to the fam, which is, you know, it's, it's just delightful. I mean, I'm, I'm honored and privileged to have, have served as mayor. It's uh, it's, it's something I love doing and uh, was passionate about our city. And it's delightful to to have a chat and, interact with people that uh, you know have similar passions and uh, you know po- folks have been very very interested in having conversations about our city more so now than ever before
0: it's, I, I can imagine it is always uh, an incredible task to be a mayor and to run a city and everything that that, that entails over the years. As you're looking at the city of Hamilton now post pandemic, a whole different uh, kettle of fish, a whole different set of situations. What are your thoughts on on this city post pandemic and 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 the challenges that it faces? Uh, had you been in the office still?
8: Uh, You know, look, uh, uh, you know, I thought about the the budget process and uh, certainly it came, uh, you know, significantly higher than previous budgets that we'd had, uh, uh, you know, in in my eight years as mayor, I think we we had 2% or less just about every year. But, you know, given the pandemic, uh, it was anticipated that there would be, uh, you know, a uh, a, a reckoning in terms of costs that uh, were borne by municipalities we had a lot of them covered off by federal and provincial government but not all of them and you know lost revenues in in uh, you know recreational facilities lost revenues in transit all of that has not yet you know completely restored itself so it was not uh, not a surprise that uh this budget uh, you know certainly came in higher now you know almost eight percent was a bit of a shocker but the reality is there there was there was going to be uh, you know a reckoning in terms of the costs that uh, we all had to bear through this uh, this whole process uh, the city is in actually in a, a great uh, a position to continue to uh, to reap the benefits of the light rail transit investment that uh, is ongoing and is going to be a spectacular opportunity for people to uh, not only create a uh, you know a world-class transportation system but to have the jobs and the employment to go with it. Uh, the waterfronts uh, you know developing quickly and uh, that was an investment that uh, was really talking about the future and future housing opportunities as well as recreational opportunities. We've got the, uh, the airport crackling along with uh, many many employment opportunities. So all the areas that I concerned myself with are, are actually well poised to fulfill, the promise of uh, what they were going to deliver for our community. So Hamilton's in good shape. Uh, we are, our economy is uh, stronger than ever. Uh, no longer are we losing commercial industrial tax base. We're actually going the other way where we're gaining commercial industrial tax base and, and employment and, and job opportunities. So uh, Hamilton is a really strong position to uh, reap the benefits of uh, what is now uh, an investment area. That uh, has found itself, uh, you know, that is appealing to, you know, a, a lot of investors in North America. So we're seeing the advent of a potential film studio at, uh, on the Tiffany lands where the stadium might have been. But now will turn into, uh, you know, a great film studio and that film studio was already there and making continuing investments in how they're going to uh, fulfill that uh, that opportunity. And that, that's an industry that employs a lot of people. So mm. we're in a really good place. And uh, all all we need to ensure is that, uh, you know, that folks take it, take it from here and uh, and continue to build on that. And there'll be new ideas and new uh, opportunities that come along that uh, hopefully we're in a position to embrace. Catching up with
0: Fred Eisenberger, former mayor of the city of Hamilton and man still selling the city. You can hear it's in the heart. Fred, as always, thanks for the time. Keep us posted. Good luck, whatever your next step is.
8: You bet, Scott. Anytime. Thank you.
0: All right. The Artemis two mission to the moon. Uh, you might remember that uh, Canadian Jeremy Hansen announced uh, he will be on the flight for the Artemis II, which uh, takes off for the furthest humanity has set. sent a cruise ship into space. Uh, that being uh, around the moon and back. Uh, Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen recently said that the mission shows what can be accomplished when the human race pulls together. My goodness, what is it like to be up in the space station or a rocket and look down and think, Hee, what do we need to get that place back together? Uh, however, beyond the positive and encouraging messages of uh operation uh, the mission sends the crew noted that there is a range of what Glover called inspirational returns and economic spin-offs a lot of us uh, don't remember that and we forget how much we have learned or gained or the technology involved in space travel has has transferred to our everyday life I remember as a kid <laughs> when the Apollo missions went off it was tang and Velcro. But, I mean, it's a lot more advanced like that. It's a lot more advanced than that now. Uh, GPS, uh, one great example. Uh, To talk about all of this and the Artemis crew being in Ottawa just this week, Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director, Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and with us now. Elena, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
9: Yes, I have been, uh, of course, following this with, with great interest, as you say, Um, Having our very own Canadian astronaut uh, involved has made it extra exciting.
0: The whole crew in Ottawa to meet and greet along with the brass of NASA. What's the purpose of that? The objective?
9: Well, I mean, I think the real purpose was to of course, share the excitement with the rest of us and uh, um, probably try to communicate a little bit about the the Artemis mission. Um, This is, a very exciting time and with the developments that we hope uh, we're looking forward to making with this Artemis program, um, I think it's really important to share with, with other humans uh, just how how many advantages space uh, and space travel have given us in the past and what we might be able to look forward to in the future. I mean, this is just a 10-day mission for Artemis 2. But it's potentially the start of a whole Back to the Moon program.
0: Uh, it's interesting how the attitude on this has changed I was watching late night TV Stephen Colbert the other night and they were talking about when this uh, uh, when when this was announced and then of course the explosion with the SpaceX and such uh, after what they dis- considered a successful launch although it only made it four minutes into flight and, 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 and sort of the angle was you know why not make the world a better place rather looking for another planet to move to I don't think that's what we're doing are we looking for another place that we can go to when we we blow this one up what what is the objective here how can so you how can you convince Canadians and Amer- and everybody that this is worthwhile we benefit from this
9: how well that's that's a really important note is there is no other earth there is no second earth uh, anywhere out there that we've ever found trust me the astronomers would tell you if there was because it would be super exciting um, but our it, whole interest in space travel um, comes about through a lot of different areas and of course the the interest behind exploration one of the things you get for free is of course development of life-changing life altering uh, technologies and processes for people here on earth um, from I mean we're all familiar with as you said uh, I think uh, Tang or something uh, yeah freeze-dried, freeze-dried food um, was of course one of the adventures that came about but also You know, memory foam, insulin pumps, uh, smoke detector, artificial limbs. There's all of these uh, developments in technology, including, of course, one that's uh, pandemic relevant, uh, better air purifiers. Mm, (laughs) Um, They actually have been invented by NASA and by ESA and by, by space agencies as part of the exploration of space. And uh, it's really interesting to see just what kind of advances we have we have found in this exploration that has helped, as I say, everything from artificial limbs over to insulin pumps here on Earth. So you do get a real tangible benefit, but it's not quite mm-hmm. um, it's not quite as straightforward as, for example, you know, if you chop yeah. down a tree and you get wood for your fire your fire stove, you know.
0: <laughs> Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director of Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. The advantages of space travel, it's not just ego and fun. Uh, Elena, thanks for the time and Insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
9: Absolutely, and good luck to everybody out there with Artemis II. Fingers and cr- toes crossed for that SLS. And, of course, um, really excited to see what Jeremy Hansen does
0: next. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week to afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer to have the last word. This last word from Barb and Belleville. So Daniel doesn't think the average Canadian cares about the public service strike. I'm average. I care. Disgusted, they are continuing to get paid. Trudeau increases the public service by 30% and spends billions shopping out. How will we ever get out of this spending mess? I doubt
4: I am the only average Canadian who cares.